0: Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. There
1: goes a fly ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there, and he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians
0: are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Dean is being mobbed as our ruleful draw. And out of center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in, arm in arm.
1: A little tap up in the air, third base side waiting is Tommy foul territory. The game is over, and the Indians have won the divisional title. Indian fans have waited 41 years,
0: and now they can really cheer. Now the pitch swung in lined to deep left field. It is goal! You should see the celebration. The Indians' third base dugout, Rajay Davis, a bullet, two run homer down the left field line, clearing the 19 foot wall. We are tied at six. This is our tribe history presented by Progressive. A regular look back at professional baseball history in Cleveland since 1901
1: and beyond now here's your host indians team historian jeremy fedor hey tribe fans welcome back to another episode of our tribe history presented by progressive i am your host team historian jeremy fedor on this episode we're going to continue focusing on the 1920 club Uh, this time we're going to look at the infield and the pitchers the first player we're going to look at is the second baseman for the club. Um, I'm going to uh, trip over my tongue pronouncing his name. And I'm always, uh, I always shoot for the, the shorter pronunciation of his name that was published in the papers as Wambi. But his name, William Adolf Womgantz, I believe that's how you pronounce it again. I I've looked it up, I've heard it, and for some reason it just won't stick for me. So if I am saying it wrong, I apologize, but I'm going to continue to call him Wombi just because it's easier and uh, I, I won't screw it up as easily. Going into 1920, it was Wombi's seventh season with the club, and he had established himself as the, the team's second baseman. You know, he wasn't. Um, lighting the league on fire by any means, but he was a, a very good second baseman for the club and comprised what was a, a very good infield for the Indians. And going into 1920 was one of their strong suits. And going back, Wambi was actually born in Ohio, but at a young age, his father took a job in Fort Wayne. He was a, a minister, so the family moved out there and... According to all the plans, it was uh, Wambi's goal or his future was to kind of follow in his father's footsteps. But then baseball kind of uh, inserted itself into his life plans and and things changed. While attending the Lutheran Seminary in St. Louis, Wambi began to play ball and he was eventually uh, recommended to join the Cedar Rapids Club in 1913. And then by 1914, he was sold to Cleveland. In 1914, he saw some action in 43 games, but he struggled. He didn't really put much together. He had a 217 batting average with 12 RBI. Um, But there was a lot of hope for him when he was called up uh, to the team. The Plain Dealer in August ran a headline, Young infielder Naps have prepping for next campaign. And there's a line that read, This year he displayed great improvement and is purchased by Cleveland. So there was a lot of hope that the club had their their second baseman of the future. As Lajouet's career came to an end in Cleveland, it was now time for Wambi to get his shot at second base. So, uh, Obviously, Knapp was sold off to Philly in the 1915 season, and Wambi really got to uh, establish himself at the the second base. He didn't have a, a great year in 1915, but His fielding was still something that caught the eye of of fans and and baseball players alike. There was a quote in the Plain dealer that mentioned how he played in League Park and the weird configurations of it. And it said, Since the right field wall at League Park was rather short, Wambi devised a flamboyant style of rushing into the outfield as soon as the ball was hit over his head and nabbing it as it creamed off the wall. So he knew how to play that wall, and being a short wall, it was easy that the ball could ricochet off that and come into a short uh, right field where Wambi could pick it up and field it and kind of, uh, again, field his position better than maybe a visiting player. And as his career kind of continued on, his numbers picked up, and like I mentioned before, he wasn't by any means the best second baseman in the game at the time, but teamed up with Ray Chapman and some of the other infielders on that team. They were actually a very good infield and really helped Cleveland in that pennant race in 1920. Here again, we're going to go back to my interview with Scott Longert, who is the author of several Indians history books, including uh, The Best That They Could Be, the 1920 Cleveland Indians Club. Uh, about that infield for the Indians and how they stacked up
0: yeah I think it was probably uh, close to the best in baseball really Um, Gardner brought him a whole dimension of a solid fielder, you know, veteran guy who played in World Series and a good hitter and an RBI man. Ray Chapman was one of the best shortstops in the game, and he was having a great year in 1920. He was hitting 300 and on pace to to drive in 100 runs and a great defensive shortstop. He could cover a lot of ground, and uh, he was famous for uh, going way out into left field and making the over-shoulder catches. He was really good at that with his speed and his agility. He did a lot of that, and he and Wambi made a really good double play combination. The two of them were very skilled and very smooth and so there we were very strong and doc johnson was uh, was a good first baseman not, not a terrific ball player but a guy you could kind of hit 290 or 300 and play fairly good defense he, he'd been with the team in early on in 1912 and 13 and he went down to the minors and wound up in pittsburgh and they got him back and lefty and he, he held the job well so their infield was very very tight you know good defense a fairly good offense and you know chapman was the leader you know the guy that would always lead and sacrifice bunts and move the runners along and to get the key hits and you know Ray was what he was a popular guy as everybody knows Ray's story and I think we really had a tremendous infield uh, which uh, really helped us to go the Pennant Drive and in the World Series, too, and unfortunately, we all know, you know what happened to Ray when he passed away, but nobody knew when they brought Joe Sewell up, they were bringing up a Hall of Fame shortstop guy that was a really good hitter, would hold the job down for about 10 years in Cleveland, so we were fortunate that we always had a really good shortstop and second base combination and a really good veteran third baseman and a, a solid first baseman, so our infield play, played a big part in it. We didn't really have much of a weakness anywhere. We really didn't. There just wasn't anywhere that uh, we were we were uh, looking for help. We I mean, were pitching a little bit, but uh, you know, left-handed pitching. But well, our infield was really good, and our outfield was even better.
1: And as Scott was saying, I'm going to kind of again gloss over Ray Chapman just because we're going to have an entire episode dedicated to the story of Ray Chapman and my interview with uh, Mike Soul, who wrote the book on. Uh, the Chapman-Mays incident, and uh, it's going to be a, a great episode, so I hope you look forward to that. But again, the Indians had a, a very great infield. And as Scott mentioned, one of those infielders was Doc Johnson, who played first base. Now, Johnson was born in Tennessee and was a star on the Chattanooga Sandlots where he, uh, assi- he signed with the Southern Association Lookouts in 1908 And he was sold to the Reds, but spent a couple years in Buffalo and kind of bouncing around in some minor league teams. And when Doc caught on with the uh, New Orleans club in Cleveland, he started making headlines in the uh, local papers. The Plain Dealer mentioned how he played very brilliantly in the spring when the Naps were training in New Orleans. And Doc is, without any doubt, the best ball player on that New Orleans club. He was batting over three hundred, So it was really only a matter of time before Doc joined the uh, the major league club from 1912 till 1914. Doc was a member of the Cleveland Naps at the time. However, he really didn't get along with the the manager Joe Birmingham, and it, it led to uh, Doc ending up wanting to leave Cleveland. Everything came to a head uh, after the 1914 season. There were headlines. Doc Johnson will not be a nap next season. This is the remark which was credited to Joe Birmingham in Cleveland last week when he was drawn into discussion of the outlook of 1915. The article went on to say, the statement was shown to the physician who is hibernating here yesterday. No, it did not move him to tears by a long shot. In fact, it brought the well-known Johnson a smile, the same pearly smile that made Doc such a fan favorite with the ladies until he joined the ranks of the benedicts doc said birmingham means that as a threat but i am taking it as a promise i only hope that he is telling the truth so again it wasn't looking good for johnson in his first stint with the club according to doc his uh, reasoning for a poor 1914 season was the fact that he didn't really have security at his position there were other guys that were uh, testing him, and and he didn't feel like he had the full support of his manager, so he was ready to catch on somewhere else and show what he could do as a first baseman. But by 1918, with a new manager, he was ready to come back to Cleveland. And during spring training, when some of the Indians visited his home, uh, he had mentioned to actually some of the writers of the plane Dealer that hey. Uh, let Cleveland know I'm ready to come back if, uh, if you need a first baseman. And sure enough, he came back to Cleveland in 1918. One of the more interesting anecdotes I found about Doc was a, a quote from Steve O'Neill, who used to say, Doc did have one trick he liked to pull. When facing a low ball pitcher, he'd hitch his trousers up to his knees, and when he opposed a highball pitcher, he'd pull his pant legs down low as he could. So I thought that was uh something a little lighthearted and funny to add to the uh, the story. And we briefly mentioned Larry Gardner in the last episode. So and going back to, to Chapman, we're gonna kind of skip over him. And we mentioned Steve O'Neill as well uh, in that previous episode. So the the infield was pretty well set um, from first to uh, to third and, and catcher. Now the Indians ended up picking up George Burns later on in the season as well, and one of those under-the-radar, but uh, huge moves for the club. This was Burns' first stint with the Indians. Uh, he was with Connie Mack in Philadelphia, but when the, the move went down in late May, George was kind of tired of playing with the athletics. Connie wanted to move him to the outfield and George wanted to stick to his position at first base. So Jim Dunn um, actually he ended up outbidding uh, Comiskey with the White Sox to obtain George Burns. And uh, in Cleveland, he could be a, a very good backup and uh, a, play, a great player at, at first base instead of just kind of throwing him into the outfield and seeing what was going to happen. From my interview with Scott, hear his his perspective on the George Burns uh, uh, pickup for Cleveland.
0: Uh, I think they, they liked him a lot. and they, they wanted help, again, from a veteran. And uh, I'm not sure. I, I don't think Johnston hit great against lefties. He probably was okay. But ideally, I think Speaker wanted another righty there that could handle uh, left-handed pitching, and again, Connie Mack was willing to sell uh, his contract to Cleveland again, which the you, you shake your head with a veteran like Burns. Why would you do that? You know, give the Indians that kind of firepower, and they already had more than all they needed to give them another weapon. But again, uh, Dunn was able to uh, talk to Mac, who again, you know, I always say Connie Mack helped us win the World Series because he gave us what we needed without, you know, with a, with a smile and, uh, and got virtually nothing in return. So Burns was valu- valuable to us, even though um, Johnston played most of the games down the stretch. Burns didn't play all that much. But in the World Series, Burns had some really key hits, some real big ones early on. And uh, Game 6, the one nothing win that we had when Males pitch like, you know, a fabulous game. Speaker was on base, and it was Burns who lined the double to, I think, left center field that scored Speaker with the only run. So Burns really uh, in just a few games showed his value that uh, that we really needed him there, and he gave us a shot in the arm in the World Series. Uh, so th- that was another thing that he became extremely valuable to us. So why he was traded away, that, that just I still don't understand that one at all. When They brought Stuffy McInnes to play a year or two later, and then they got Burns Back and he becomes the MVP in 19, I believe 25. Uh, Burns should never have left here. That was that was very questionable decision. But they had a shot to get him in 1920, and, and Jim Dunn was never a guy afraid to spend money, which is another reason I think we won it all in 1920. Whatever was needed, uh, Dunn was happy to uh, write the check, and uh, they didn't absolutely have a dying need for Burns, but it would be it was a nice addition that would really help him, So he never hesitated. You know, Connie said this is my price. I think it was maybe ten thousand and Burns said, here's the check, I'm writing it, it's going in the mail and uh, we got George Burns here, which was, which was a big help to us and uh, Burns, I, I never really quite got the do. he deserved he was a very good ball player, good first baseman, good all-around guy good ball player and it really helped Cleveland here more than people uh, give him recognition for
1: And that really rounds out the, the infield for the Indians now we're going to focus on the pitching staff a personal favorite of mine is Stan Kowalewski. Um, and a personal, I am po- of Polish ancestry, and Stan as well, obviously with the name Kowalewski. He was a. Uh, I was born in Shamokin, Pennsylvania, which was a coal town on the eastern side of, of Pennsylvania. His parents had immigrated from Poland in the 1870s, and they, um, like many. Polish immigrants of that era settled in the eastern part of Pennsylvania for the coal mining jobs. So, again, very much like my great-grandparents as well. So I feel this cosmic uh, in a tie to, to Stan as a, a member of the Cleveland Indians organization as well as having this Polish ancestry, I guess. But nevertheless, Covey uh, ends up becoming one of the, the best pitchers in, in Cleveland baseball history. And he was the youngest of eight children, so much like uh, Steve O'Neill. Again, These large families. uh, Covey began to work uh, around the coal mines in age 12. He he made it a point that he would work from sunup to sundown uh, for 12 hours a day. But what he found time was, or in his spare spare time, he would find it uh, an amusement to throw rocks at cans. And that's kind of how he developed his control was was checking these pebbles at empty pop cans and became very proficient at that. But it was Stan's brother who ended up making it to the majors first. Who uh, was spotted playing sandlot ball by a scout from St. Louis, and he made his way to the major leagues, debuted with the Phillies in 1907, uh, later recalled 1908, and it was during this time that he etched his name in baseball history in this five-game span from September 29th, then October 1st, and October 3rd, where he ended up defeating the New York Giants, earned this nickname of the Giant Killer, and that was uh, really the, the high point of his brother's career. He ended up holding the Giants in those three games to 17 hits in 27 innings and knocked them out of first place, so... Again, the Kovalevskis have the have baseball running through their blood, as well as say the O'Neills or these other baseball families. It wasn't long before Stan started catching the eye of of major league uh, managers and 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 scouts. Uh, he started. He signed with Lancaster in 1909, where he pitched there for a few years. Then in September of 1912, he was called up by Connie Mack. He got his first start where he uh, shut out the Tigers, allowing just three hits. But he didn't end up sticking with the club, and in 1913 he was sent back down for more seasoning. And according to his Sabre biography, uh, Covey was sent to Spokane with uh, Connie Mack having the impression that he'd retain the rights to Covey. After the 1914 season, he was sent to Portland, and it was during this time it was said that Mac had kind of forgotten about Stan's rights, uh, never taking up the claim. And later on, when they asked about the Polish hurler, uh, he was told that his claim had expired. And the Portland Beavers in the Pacific Coast League he was playing with, um, he was really making a name for himself and ended up picking up the spitball. It was the spitball then that really put Stan on the map and got him uh, a chance to to show what a great pitcher he was. And if you're ever interested in exactly how a spitball works or how much work it takes to learn how to throw something like that, there's a great sports science video on YouTube. I think it's Jake Peavy or some former major league pitcher on there, and they give him all these doctored balls. And you know it takes a, a certain skill to learn how to use a ball that's been that manipulated uh and throw it for strikes um but Kovey had learned how and became one of the best pitchers uh to use that pitch in the spring of 1916 as the plane dealers reporting on the uh, upcoming season it was noted that kovaleski is a pitcher upon whom full is banking kovi has control he worked in 64 games for portland last season and issued only 82 passes hit only three batsmen, and had but five wild pitches. So along with Ed Klepfer, who we mentioned in that World War I episode, uh, they were both spitballers on that Indians roster. And in 1916, he, he had a pretty decent record. He was 15 and 13 and 27 starts. Uh, again, tallied 232 innings, striking out 76. And his numbers would continue to improve uh, as he went along. He was just such a, a very durable pitcher. His arm, maybe it was made of rubber or something, or maybe the spitball just extended his life. But he has the Indians' franchise record for most innings pitched in a game. And while you might think maybe 10, 11, 12, 13, no, Stan went a 19-inning game and finished that game, which then got me thinking, well, how often did Stan go past nine innings? And sure enough, he holds the franchise record for most 10-plus innings games pitched for the Indians. And in case you're wondering, he ended up pitching 25 games of 10 innings or more, where he went uh, uh, 14-11, and and 22 uh, of those games were with the Indians, which included that 19-inning game. And then later on in his career, he pitched some of those other extra inning games for Washington. In addition to Covey was uh, Jim Bagby, who was uh, nicknamed Sarge. Now, he wasn't nicknamed Sarge because of any sort of uh, military career. Rather, there was a character in a play whose name was Jim Bagby, and his nickname was Sarge, so it kind of stuck with him. But Sarge was a, a son of the South. He got his first big league start with the Reds in 1912. Um, however, after that season, he was sent back to the minors. Eventually, he caught on with New Orleans, which was you know, Cleveland's kind of feeder club. And he became one of the top pitchers in the league. But not only was he a great pitcher, but he was actually also a great hitter. And he would be called upon quite frequently in, in the minors to be a pinch hitter. And um, in a game in 1916 in spring training, Lee Fole actually tried it out and Bagby delivered with an RBI single that scored the eventual winning run. So again, he was a pitcher that could kind of do it all. In 1917, he put together one of the greatest pitching seasons in Indians baseball history. And it's only his second full season uh, with the club. His 8.5 war put him 12th all time for single season pitching, just ahead of Corey Kluber's 8.3 uh, war in 2014. So he really had solidified himself as one of the, the better starters on that Cleveland team. And Scott goes into a little more detail about this one, two combo of Covey and Bagby. Yeah,
0: we had a really good one too with, with Kovaleski and and Jim Bagby senior and Sarge, um, that was excellent. Ray Caldwell turned out to be a really good third starter. He proved himself in 1919 even though he had uh, bounced around a bit and he had some uh, I guess he was something of an alcoholic so they couldn't always count on him but he uh, he was able to, to keep it together in Cleveland so they really wanted a fourth starter a lefty. They went to the winter meetings and tried to figure something out and couldn't make a, couldn't make a decent trade at one point I believe uh, Dunn offered a fortune for Walter Johnson but uh, they couldn't pull that off and then uh, he tried to get I think it was Al Al Sutherland from uh, St. Louis couldn't do that. So they were constantly on the hunt for a lefty. They didn't really fill the fourth spot. They had George Uli in there for a bit and some other guys, Guy Morton, a veteran on the team, but nobody fit until in August they were able to uh, find duster males walter males from the pacific coast league who was the lefty they were looking for and um, once they put males in there as a regular till august males was outstanding he went seven games in a row and really led the way in september and pitched tremendous in the world series so now you had a really out rotation where uh in 20 uh let's see it was uh, fifty five wins between uh, Kovaleski and Bagby, that was pretty good for two pitchers. You had in Caldwell winning twenty, so you had seventy five wins from your number one, two, and three starters, which is pretty amazing to do that and Bagby of course, won the thirty one games he would have probably a season of one of the great seasons of any pitcher ever that year, and Kovaleski was tremendous, had his uh, twenty four um so these guys really were were on their game from day 1. I believe uh going into late May Bagby was something like 8-0 and Kovaleski was 8-1. They were just dominating the American League. Caldwell got off to a slow start, but then um Around uh, July and August, he got real hot. So they had uh, three of the, arguably three of the best pitchers in baseball. And when males came up for the short time, our pitching staff was unbeatable. They, they were just uh, far superior than anybody else. So I think adding males as late as they did was the final piece of the puzzle they needed and gave them consistency. And that, that really helped them when uh, they had to fight it out at the end. When uh, After Ray passed away, the guys you know fell apart for a while and fell down to second place. They had to battle back. They had the pitching to do it and, and the hitting and, set, and and they won it. Huh? Thanks to those guys.
1: And as Scott mentions, uh, Walter Duster-Males, we're going to get into him a little bit later in a different episode of the podcast, along with Joey Sewell, who ends up taking over for, uh, Ray Chapman. After Chapman's hit, we'll just kind of save them for our podcast about the nineteen actual nineteen twenty season, uh, the nuts and bolts of that, while we focus on the team leading into that season. Another pitcher on that club was George Youli, and we're gonna focus a little time on George, um, mostly because he was a a Clevelander. So, you know, on that. He gets us meter. He'd probably hit off the chart because he, again, born and raised in Cleveland. So I'm going to hit on him a little bit just because of of that. Now he wasn't to the level of Covey or Bagby at this point in his career. He was still relatively young. However, he goes on to have a, a pretty stellar career with Cleveland that you know, we'll we'll talk about later. But nevertheless. Uh, Yuli made a name for himself on the sandlots of Cleveland on some of these semi-pro teams. Yuli had a quote where he he said, I was playing semi-pro ball when I signed. I could get more money playing semi-pro than I could in the big leagues because I could have a job and get that extra on Saturday and Sundays. i get cut in on the gate receipts, and once a week we'd go out of town too. So I told the Cleveland Ball Club that I'd only sign a contract where if I didn't make the team, they wouldn't send me down to the minor leagues they give me my release instead. So they wanted to find out right quick and pitch me in the first series of that season. It was against St. Louis, and as soon as we opened, I pitched the second game. And sure enough, in that second game, George went six and a third innings with eight hits, two earned runs, and five walks. Yuli established himself as a pretty decent pitcher uh, that the club was going to hang on to and they weren't going to send him down. So again, you had a local Clevelander playing on the club. You do start to see Yuli's name, though, before the season in 1918 playing on the standard parts uh, semi-pro team. He played with a few uh, former major leaguers, so they were a pretty substantial team, and uh, flashback to that era of baseball and semi-pro baseball in Cleveland was huge. Uh, if you Google the Brookside Park game, there was uh, reportedly 100,000 fans at that ballpark or the kind of like a, an alcove in uh, the hills where this baseball field was. And the picture, pictures are just astounding of all these uh, fans gathered in there. Um, if you're from the area, it's that area right by the zoo if you're headed out that way. And it's just stunning that, there's that many people turning out for a, a Sandlot baseball game. Um, I believe it was like the White Automotive Club and the, uh, the another factory-sounding team. I'd have to look at the name. It slips. Uh, one of those stories that I think again deserves its own. Podcast. I keep saying that because, again, my eyes get bigger than my stomach sometimes and I want to bite off all these stories and, and do podcasts about them. So I'm hoping I can do the story about that semi-pro game that attracted 100,000 supposed uh, fans uh, to go see it. But nevertheless, again, Yuli was making a name for himself. He was the best pitcher on that club. And it, it makes sense that it wasn't before long that he was picked up and, and put into the Cleveland roster. Now, Yuli wasn't ready necessarily to step in and, uh, you know, challenge Kobe for the number one spot. Um, but again, you know, every journey kind of starts with that first step, and uh, here's Scott's take on George.
0: George uh had had some moments in 1920 but I think when the, they needed a win or he was not he was not the guy. Uh I, I don't think he was ready yet to become a starter. He he had some and and it pitched fairly well from time to time but he also I don't think it was a guy they weren't counting on. He I think he was Mostly a long relief guy when they were getting really beat or they were way ahead and they wanted to put somebody in. I don't think they counted on him in any key games in 1920. But by the next year, though, Yuley had a big season. He was our he was our top guy in, in 21. I think he led us in wins because Bagby fell apart and and so sort did of Caldwell and Males hey, He had pitched fair and Kowaleski pitched good, but Yuley uh, came along in 21. I think and, and did a pretty good job. But I don't think 20 was his year, and I don't think Speaker thought it was either. So he wasn't a guy that. Uh, he was going to look to in any kind of key situation then, but he had, you know, he had the potential, and uh, he would he would show what he had uh, a year later, but uh, not in uh, not in 1920.
1: And rounding out that pitching staff was Guy Morton, also known as the Alabama Blossom. Uh, when I was trying to figure out why he was called the Alabama Blossom, there was a a Plain Dealer a sketch by the the artist of the the period, and. One of the things it highlighted was the fact that no one really knew why they called him, you know, the Blossom. It was just kind of his nickname. The story of how Guy Morton was discovered in Alabama is also kind of fascinating uh, in and of itself. And it was retold in the Plain Dealer. It mentioned that uh, Guy ran across his old catcher and manager uh, when he was in spring training with the Indians, and they recounted the fact that. When guy or when the player manager was coming back from a squirrel hunt, kind of disgusted, he couldn't get anything. He saw this tall and lean uh, country boy with a an entire you know pockets full of these these squirrels, and uh, the the guy who ended up being Morton was kind of disgusted because you know it took him two stones to kill uh, one of the squirrels, and he was a crack shot, so having to use two stones was kind of uh, uh, not what he was aiming for. It's just one of those tales of that era of baseball where, uh, you know, everyone's got these unique stories of how they were found, whether it's, you know, Cy Slapnick coming from the cornfields to pick up Feller, or in this instance, it's a, uh, a guy that was throwing rocks at squirrels or with Kovaleski throwing rocks at tin cans, kind of uh, learning how to be a, a control pitcher. So that was Guy Morton's story. And that rounds out our uh, deep dive into the 1920 roster. As I mentioned before, we're going to look at guys like Joey Sewell and Duster Males as we go further uh, into the actual season of 1920. And then next week we're going to... Uh, focus on Smokey Joe Wood as i mentioned before i had the opportunity to interview Gerald Wood who wrote a uh, award winning biography on Smokey Joe so that'll be fun and then after that i'm going to uh work in my my interview with Mike Soul who wrote the pitch that killed uh, about Ray Chapman and Carl Mays so Uh, Two more, guys, we're going to focus on before we start diving into the 1920 season and then that uh, famous World Series. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Our Tribe History presented by Progressive. I hope you will join us next week as we talk about Smokey Joe Wood.
0: You've been listening to Our Tribe History presented by
1: Progressive
0: with your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor.